Hey everybody, it's Tim. It's the honor roll, episode two of 2022, the second honor roll of the year. Obviously, since it's episode two, I am recording this in the midst of the death, the Midwest death storm 2022. Uh, it's going to be a big one here where I'm at. We're going to get a foot of snow. It's just started. I'm recording this before I get too, too down and too, uh, too sad. I'm looking out the window right now and it's just getting worse. We're supposed to, yeah, we're supposed to get a foot, I think is what they said. I don't know. Here's the here's the big deal, and I'm be honest with you because I'm bringing I'm telling this story right now because it makes me look good in some ways. I was walking home the other day. My neighbor was out. She's got a, she's got a baby, and she had the baby in like a carriage, like a like a chest thing, and she was shoveling her walk. And I said, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! Don't take the baby inside. I can I can do this. Just let me get my stuff." And so I went and shoveled her driveway and her walk. Very nice, very neighborly. Uh, but I should say this. I did that when there was like two inches of snow. It was very easy. Now I'm looking outside. We're going to get 12 inches. This was a mistake by me because now I'm expected to do it. Now I feel awful if uh, we don't do it. So so there you go. Um, that's just me um, trying to make myself look good and also terrible at the same time because I'm conflating about it. This baby needs to grow up and do some work is what I'm saying next door. Let's uh, not waste any more time here. I guess not that we've wasted time already in the first minute. I want to talk about some movies because we've got five of them. This is how we do things here on the honor roll. I watch five new releases, 2022 releases, and then I pick which ones I really like and which ones I think will make the honor roll at the end of the year, which is essentially my top 10 list. So I take them out, put them on the honor roll. And from that, I will pick my top 10 list. Excuse me. We've got a quite a mix of movies here. Most of them I did not enjoy. So let's get into one that I did enjoy. And it's a documentary. I think this is the first documentary I've covered on the honor roll here. This is Boris Karloff, the man behind the monster. Karloff examining his illustrious 60-year career in the entertainment industry and his enduring legacy as one of the icons of the 20th century popular culture. Directed by Thomas Hamilton. This was made by Thomas Hamilton. Written, writing credit to Ron McCloskey as well. It's got a pretty decent lineup of talking heads featured. Some of them, Chris, um, Christopher Plummer is in it. Ron Perlman is in it. We'll get into it a little bit more as I go through this. I like this. It's a pretty straightforward uh, biographical documentary. It's pretty laser focused on Karloff and his work, but that's okay with me. I should also mention up front, I just finished watching the folk horror documentary on Shudder as well. It's called Woodlands, Dark Days, and Bewitched, A History of Folk Horror. And that is very good as well, but it's a much more sprawling documentary than this. And it does kind of have to be considering the subject matter of that one. And that's covering a lot of different areas of, of horror film, but to compare the two and why I think I, I personally prefer something like this Karloff documentary is that laser focus on the subject that I mentioned early. The folk horror doc is over three hours long. It, and it goes off on some pretty interesting tangents, but tangents nonetheless. And it also felt a little bit more scattershot at times for me. This is mostly about Carlos' work, and it features a pretty solid roster of talking heads discussing his work and, and the importance of it. It's got historians like David J. Skull, Leonard Maltin, Gregory Mank, a couple of them who have wrote, who have written books about Karloff. Um, 
and who I will talk a little bit more about later. But it's also got filmmakers like Roger Corman, Guillermo del Toro, John Landis. Uh, Karloff's daughter plays a pretty big role in this as well. And it covers his entire career. It talks about his personal life. It dives into the formation of the Screen Actors Guild and Karloff's often forgotten role in that. If I had to lob a criticism at this documentary, it doesn't go super in-depth into anything really, but that's what the books are for. So come on now. I will recommend a couple of good books later on, but while the movie structures itself so that it dives into the big stuff first, Frankenstein mainly, and then it doubles back to cover Karloff's early life, it does kind of gloss over one of my favorite kind of what-if stories in horror history, and that is the question of what if Bella Lugosi played Frankenstein's monster instead of Boris Karloff? And because that almost happened, uh, Karloff, of course, was more than just Frankenstein monster. He had a varied career, that's for sure. But obviously, this is probably his most well-known role. But it's the role... The role itself wasn't originally meant to be his. Dracula was a huge hit and hoping to make more huge hits in the same vein, Universal and studio head Carl Lemley Jr. began working on adapting Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, the stage version, though, in particular. And because of the success of Dracula, the actor that they first turned to to play the monster was Bella Lugosi, who, of course, played Dracula. This is where things get pretty interesting because there are conflicting reports on a lot of this. And most of the information I am using is pulled from um, a book by Gregory Mink about Bella Lugosi and Boris Karloff. And it's called Bella Lugosi and Boris Karloff, the expanded story of a haunting collaboration. So that's where most of this information I'm going to be talking about is pulled from. A couple of background bits on Lugosi and his history with Universal at the time. He wasn't actually the first uh, choice to play Dracula either. Junior Lamley originally rejected Lugosi and hoped to cast Lon Chaney in the part. After Chaney's death, Lamley, Lamley went on to consider Paul Mooney, Conrad Veidt, and Ian Keith, who Ian Keith was originally announced to play the role of Dracula over Bella Lugosi. Carl Sr. was just preparing to start work on Frankenstein, excuse me while I, I mute my emails here. Uh, Carl Sr., who was the owner of Universal Pictures at the time, he wasn't crazy about Lagosa as Dracula either. Um, he wasn't crazy about Dracula in general, to be honest. He thought his son was crazy for producing that type of movie, and he said he would go, he would get the creeps from Lugosi himself. Regardless, Dracula was a huge hit for Universal, and Lugosi, of course, played a huge role in that. So in 1931, Universal was just preparing to start work on Frankenstein. And this was before James Whale came on board too. So the director attached at the time was Robert Flory, who had directed the Marx Brothers uh, first movie, The the Coco Nuts. And he would later direct Murders in the Rue Morgue for Universal in 1932. The actor attached prior to Karloff to the project at the time with Flory was Bella Lugosi. Now, according to Flory, the director attached at the time, Lugosi thought that he would be playing the title role of the scientist, Dr. Frankenstein. But Junior Lemley decided that due to the success of Lugosi's performance as the monster, he was going to play, Lugosi was going to play the monster itself. Lugosi was not interested in playing the monster as it was presented in the stage play that they were focused on adapting, not so much the book. The book, of course, features monologues by the monster, which probably would have sat better with Lugosi, but the stage play presented the monster as kind of a grunting 
a grunting beast. To give you an idea of how Lugosi felt about the role of Frankenstein monster, he would say during his screen test, which we'll talk about in a second, I will not be a grunting, babbling idiot for anybody. I was a star in my country, and I will not be a scarecrow over here. <laughs> Great stuff from Bella. But this being the 1930s, and there being no entities like the Screen Actors Guild, which Boris Karloff of course, had a huge role in founding, Legosi pretty much had to do what the studio said and even went to went so far as to conduct a screen test in full makeup for the role of the monster. Now, let's talk about that screen test. As far as I know, this is still lost. It's bewildered historians for decades. It's kind of one of the holy grails for horror fans and historians alike, film historians alike. Here's some of what author Gregory Mank has gathered in his book regarding that lost Lugosi as the monster screen test. And a lot of this is focused on what Lugosi would have looked like as the monster, because it's quite different than what ended up on screen in the Karloff version, kind of that iconic look that we know we know and love. The most famous description came from Edward Van Sloan, who played Van Helsing in Dracula and was at the screen test playing Dr. Waldman. Um, with Lugosi. In an interview with Forrest J. Ackerman, of course, of Famous Monsters of Filmland, in 1964, he compared Lugosi's look to the golem. The golem, of course, the mythical creature from Jewish folklore. Van Sloan said that Lugosi's head was about four times the normal size and had a broad wig on it. He had a polished clay-like skin, he said. Flory, on the other hand, describes Lugosi's look as being identical to what ended up in the Karloff feature, save for the neck electrodes, which bothered Lugosi so much during the screen test that he would just yank them off continually. But even Karloff himself would comment on the screen test in an interview with Castle of Frankenstein magazine, saying, I was once told that he insisted on doing his makeup himself, and he did this awful hairy creature, not at all like our monster. So that kind of backs up Van Sloan's description of what Lugosi looked like. Whatever the case may be with the makeup used for the look of the monster during the test, the test, the test itself was by all accounts just a disaster. Flory recalled that in addition to yanking the electrodes from his neck Lugosi would storm on and off the set there are even conflicting reports here though as cinematographer Paul Ivano recalls Lugosi telling him that his profile looked magnificent and record uh, he rewarded the cinematographer with a cigar for all his hard work and but these conflicting reports by the way make total sense with Lugosi's personality by the way all of this can be true knowing knowing Bella Lugosi and how how he was known to kind of fly off the handle um, the test itself, though, failed to impress Junior Lemley, who was, of course, the person it had to pass through at the time. In a short time after the test, Flory would be removed from the project and replaced by James Whale. And eventually, Lugosi would be replaced as well once Whale began to kind of assert his vision as production kicked in. The footage was probably destroyed by Universal, who more than likely saw no value in it at the time of its destruction, but it remains a fascinating what-if in horror history, and a what-if that has kind of been answered when Lugosi would go on to play the monster in Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, but one kind of has to wonder what a Lugosi-starring version of the original film would have looked like, or at the very least a glimpse at that screen test for the monster. Anyway, back to the documentary. I am putting it on the honor roll. I also want to re recommend that full core documentary that's on Shudder as well, which I'm not putting on the honor roll, but it's definitely worth a watch. The Karloff doc does what a good documentary should do, which is to spark an interest in the subject that it's covering. If you want a more in-depth look at Karloff and early 
horror movies in general. A couple of books I would recommend reading. His authorized biography, of course, A Gentleman's Life. Uh, what a great biography name. But there's a book called Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff, The Expanded Story of a Haunting Collaboration by, this is written by Gregory Mank, who I've talked about a little bit. It's very long. It's also very good. And it's also a little seedy at times. It does not shy away from the gossip. Um, For example, it mentions how well-endowed Karloff was. Uh, There's even direct quotes on that. Uh, in the book. So there you go. That's my that's my highest recommendation for a biography. Also, if you are looking for a great general early horror history book, check out The Monster Show by David J. Skull and read J- David J. Skull's books in general. Hollywood Gothic is another one. It's focused on Dracula, but it's also worth a read and does cover a little bit of Frankenstein and early Universal Pictures as well. But there you go. I am putting this one, Boris Karloff, The Man Behind the Monster, which you can stream on Shudder right now. And they've also put up a few of his um, movies on the service as well, but I'm putting this on the honor roll. All right, folks, it's slasher search time. The Jack in the Box Awakening. When a vintage Jack in the Box is opened by a dying woman, she enters into a deal with the demon within that would see her illness cured in return for helping it claim six in- innocent v- victims. Excuse me. This is a sequel, by the way, directed by Lawrence Fowler, written by Lawrence Fowler. This, he did the original, too, starring Matt McClure, James Swanton, Swanton, and Molly Hindle. All right, Slasher Search Time. This is the Slasher, slasher Search. Should have renamed it. Not going to. I'm just going to continue to fumble through saying the segment. It's a segment on the show where I watch a new slasher movie ingraded in five areas. And this is the slasher itself, mind you, that I'm focused on, not so much the movie. It's really whatever I want it to be, to be completely honest. It's a gimmick. Uh, let's not lie to ourselves here. But anyway, here are the five categories that I will be grading this slasher in. Backstory, motive, appearance, kills, victims. Now, Jack in the Box Awakening is a little bit different because it's a sequel to 2019's Jack in the Box, which is on Tubi now, and it's fine. It's not bad. Uh, the sequel is similar in that way, where it's pretty fine as well. Uh, but as it pertains to our slasher search, I'm trying to stick with the to the backstory featured in this movie, the sequel which is good because there is a ton of it. This is also our first supernatural slasher. Actually went back and forth while I was watching this on whether or not to include it, but I did because supernatural slashers are a thing. Freddy, of course, but The Boogeyman, Victor Crowley, Mary Lou from Prom Night 2, my personal favorite of those. Uh, Anyway, this movie does feature a main killer taking out a group of people one at a time in an isolated setting. There's a body count. There's a backstory driven by vengeance. The killer has a unique look. There's a final girl. It features enough of the trademarks that I think it qualifies for slasher slasher search. So let's get after it. Let's go. Let's see if I can stop pronouncing it. Um, Backstory. Let's start with backstory. I'm going to do my best here because the backstory for the Jack in the Box is kind of vomited out in the midst of a seven-minute expository scene in the middle of the movie. And I think some of it ties into the original, which I have seen as well, but here we go. There's a box that holds the Yakaminstera, aka the Demon of Torment. It was The box was created by a demonologist to hold the Yakaminstera, one of the most dangerous demons that this demon hunter has ever encountered. The box itself was never meant to stay locked, though, as its one true purpose is to grant a single wish for freeing the demon from inside of it. It's a reward for allowing the demon access to our world once again. There are four letter slots on the top of the box for wishes where you can spell out what wish you want to be granted. So if you want food, you just move the letters around to spell food. If you want a baby, 
then you spell out baby on the box. If you notice, I'm only spelling out words with four letters, though, so it doesn't grant every wish imaginable, just wishes that you can spell out with four letters. If you want unlimited power, too bad, unless you can find a like a four-letter synonym for unlimited power. The woman who makes this wish in the movie spells out life because she is dying and wants life. It's, it's a little vague, to be honest, but the demon gets it, so whatever. The demon inside needs to kill, but we will get into that when we get into the motive a little bit more. Anyway, the creature inside was once a human being named Diddy Dubois. Dubois Dubois was a clown in the Victorian era, but voices in his head demanded that he kill his own family. This was the voice of the Giacomistera. Giacomistera, sorry. And it's a demon that takes control of its host body, starting with the mind. Makes total sense. Dubois tries to exercise the demon, but it's too late. The demon has taken hold. Dubois knows he's running out of time, so he heads to the demonologist, demanding that he cast into the box forever, by the demonologist. By the way, I'm spoiling this whole movie and I forgot to give a spoiler alert. So I'll put it in the notes, but that's all I'm doing. Uh, Dubois tries to exercise the demon, but it's too late. I already said that. Um, Twist though, twist. Dubois is betrayed by the demonologist who wants a child, a son that God wouldn't give him as he believes. So he locks Dubois away in the box. He puts the word baby on the box so that when enough time has passed and the Yakimistera has taken hold of Dubois, it can be unleashed to claim its victims and the demonologist is rewarded with a son. So to sum this up, I guess, the Jack in the Box is former Victorian era clown Didier Dubois, who is under control of the demon of torment, the Yakimanstera. That's the backstory in the nutshell. Nu- nut- <laughs> this is me in a nut- nutshell. Uh, I'm going with seven and f- 7.5 on this backstory. I'm giving this a score of 7.5 out of 10. It's convoluted as hell. It's just spit out in the movie in a very long scene that I had to pause numerous times to make sure I got it and to make sure that you get it. Uh, But it does a nice job of setting up the motive with the box itself. And you can tell the writers and filmmakers put some effort into this. It's not just a guy in a cool costume killing uh, killing people, which is fine, too. But there is a whole comic book-esque backstory to it that they made up for a demon. Uh, And I dig it. Good work, everybody. All right. Motive. I'm a little torn here. The motive really belongs more to the box itself, as I mentioned. The wishes that it grants are extremely limited. I would like the backstory on why the demonologist landed on having the box only have four letters on it. I'm also a little funny on how the demonologist knew the demon of torment would grant his wish of a baby because he did specifically create the box to get the demon to grant his wish. I guess it's in his research, so whatever. But that could have been something that slipped by me in the long scene of exposition too. What I do like about this motive is that there are a couple of simultaneous goals here, both for the killer and the people trying to have their wish of life granted. And I haven't mentioned this, but it does give the jack in the box a number to shoot for as well. The jack in the box has to hit a clear objective of six kills and then it will grant the wish. The movie does a pretty good job of making this clear throughout. And I like that. We know what's in it for the demon as well because it needs these kills to stay in control, to stay sated. So I'm going with a seven on motive appearance. Now, this is what drew me in to watching the movie. Honestly, he's really cool looking. The jack in the go look at the cover right now. The jack in the box is super cool looking. Uh, someone, uh, Someone in our Discord compared him, I think it's Bruce, but someone in our Discord compared him to the alien from Star Trek Nemesis. And I like that because there is a lot of other, there's an otherworldly quality to the Jack in the Box. He's kind of scaly looking. He's got these dagger-like teeth. He's tall and thin. He's got elf ears. He's kind of, he's kind of Nosferatu-ish. 
I also think this, uh, this, the parents speaks to the importance of box art. And it's important as you are scrolling around on VOD, I stopped and looked at this because I was in the mood for a slasher, obviously. And the Jack in the box on the cover looked kind of cool. The clown look is a little played out. And if we're going to compare current slasher, old timey clown looks, I think you have to give the edge to art, the clown. Uh, I believe that's his name from the Terrifier movies, but I like the Victorian era look and makeup in this one. There's also some thought and care put into the look. I also like the look of the box itself. And I guess this is more sound than appearance, but it plays uh, Pop Goes the Weasel whenever the Jack in the Box is near. I think that's a neat touch. And it's also very annoying. Um, also, for a low-budget horror flick, this is a decent-looking movie. And what I mean by that is it doesn't look distractingly cheap. It looks like a movie. I think the seams show a little bit with the costume toward the end. And it looks a little cosplay in certain shots. And there's one shot in particular where he is supposed to be emerging from the box, but he's obviously standing behind it. But overall, it looks nice. I'm going with high. I'm going eight on appearance. All right. Kills. I've been pretty positive so far, but here comes the negative. The kills are kind of lame here, sadly. He's also pretty inconsistent with how he kills. Sometimes he's a bit tortury. He carves smiles into some victim's faces like he's like the Joker or something. There's a decent kill where he kills a guy and guts him and then he drags him off screen and you see the blood trail. But a lot of there's a couple of them that happen off screen as well. Boo, boo. I mentioned this, but I do like he has a goal and this ties into kills. And six is a decent number for a slasher. But what I don't like is that in most cases, the victims are brought to him. He's not really stalking them. The son like will tie up a victim in this movie, like the son who's trying to get his mom to stay alive, will tie up the victim in a shed and then bring the box into the shed so that he can kill them. The Jack in the Box, kind of lazy, kind of a lazy slasher. So four for kills. And finally... The victims themselves, because every slasher needs good victims. They are Brits. That's right. This is a British slasher film. That's something a little different. So I like that. We're dealing with two main characters here, the mother and the son. And there is a bit of a kind of like a Norman Norman Bates relationship between the two of them. And the son is suitably unstable. And I, I bought that he would help his mother try not to die by feeding these victims to the Yekamonstera. Uh, the rest of the victims are a mixed bag, though. There are three people on the grounds, including what I guess is our final girl, who is one of two housekeepers. There is also a romantic subplot between the other two that is kind of distracting and half-baked. To get to the six kills, though, the movie does jump through some hoops to get characters on the grounds, including the ex-girlfriend of the son. That's the kind of the flip side to having a set number of kills that you need to hit is that you have to kind of you have to some of it gets a little convoluted and um, yeah, you have to jump through hoots to get them there. This is also a movie that goes out of its way to show you that these people can't call or use the Internet. And I'm going to be honest, that is uh, that is something I find more distracting. Like they just there are multiple scenes where the the uh, final girl can't text like the text won't be and i was just that took me out of the movie more than just them not being able to text uh five for victims they're fine they're right in the middle so let's total let's total up jack in the box from jack in the box awakening the awakening we have a seven and a half for backstory a seven for motive an eight for appearance a four for kills and a five for victims bringing its total to a pretty solid 31 and a half out of 50 points. I'm a tough grader when it comes to slasher. So it, he's in first. Jack in the Box is in first now over, uh, well, boy, from uh, Stoker Hills. As for the movie itself, it's okay. The first one is on Tubi for free. So if this seems like a series you might be interested, check out the first one first. 
because it's free on Tubi to get your feet wet because this is around the same quality, honestly. And it's, it's not on the honor roll. I'm going to try to get through these next through three, through these next three really quick. The free fall. After attempting to take her own life, a young woman must wrestle with an, with an overbearing husband. Directed by Adam Stilwell, written by Kent Harper, starring Andrea Londo, Sean Ashmore, Iceman, and Jane Badler from V, the old miniseries, science fiction miniseries from the 80s, V, Jane Badler. This was okay. I always refer to movies like this as kind of three for one video store specials. This is like a perfect uh, rent three, get one free video store movie. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Way back in the days of the video stores, if you remember them, if you if you are old like me, you would have a couple of different specials and they would usually organize them by like tags. The video store I worked at and used to go to. The brand new releases would be a solid yellow tag. And those prices would be set at the most expensive price in the store outside of like video games, of course. So like the new Ghost Busters movie just came out. That would be on the new release wall for like $3.80 for one night. Then there was the green and yellow tags. These would normally be movies that would have been out for a month or two. The rentals on them had slowed down and now they would be moved to the five night option. So you could rent it at the normal price for one night or you could keep it for five nights for like $4. So like 20 cents more, 50 cents more. The five night option was a nice way to like to entice people to spend extra money so they didn't have to come back the next day and return the movie. Now, what the video stores really wanted was late fees, but that's a different story altogether. Where I lived in, though, and my favorite section was the purple and yellow tags, the Los Angeles Lakers tags, the rent three, get one free tags. These were the movies that were still on the new release wall, had been for a while now. So something like Ghostbusters Afterlife would be a movie that would be rented quite often until honestly, probably closer to the like the summer now for where we are now. Uh, like probably a few months down the road. So I don't think this movie would hit the rent three, get one option until probably like late April, early May, maybe. But I think something like Cry Macho or No Time to Die or Candyman, which hit VOD back in like October or November, these would probably be hitting the rent three, get one section around now because uh, the rentals had slowed down on them. A lot of times these would be re- new releases that were also just starting to hit the, like the premium pay channels or streaming services like Netflix as well. So if something were going to debut on HBO Max and still on the new release wall, it would be moved to the rent three, get one free wall. And you also had a lot of low budget horror movies on that wall too. Here's why I loved the rent three, get one free wall. They were all five nights so I could plan my week and felt no pressure to watch all of them at once. It was cheaper. I didn't have to worry about late fees, all that. But the other reason I had to, that I loved it had to do with that fourth rental because there was no pressure on that movie to be good at all. The fourth movie was the one you grabbed uh, because it was the one you walked by maybe, stopped for a second, maybe picked it up, looked at the cover or read the summary around the back and then you put it down to continue looking f- around the stores for movies that you were more interested in. A lot of the times it would be like a special bonus rental or a surprise. The absolute best moment in all of like going to the video store was when you got up to the counter and the associate behind there, if they were good at their job, uh, would go, actually, this one is mismarked. Do you want to, it should be a part of the rent three, get one free group. Do you want to go around and look for your free rental? Absolutely. I do. Now this was a nice surprise though, but it was also kind of terrifying if you struggled to get three movies and couldn't find a fourth that looked interesting because then you were paralyzed by choices on the new release wall. Also, you're kind of worried about how long you were taking. And if the customer in line behind you, if there was one was going to uh, have to wait longer while you were looking, or if the associate was going to bring them up a lot of anxiety, came along with the free rental if you didn't know what you wanted. So um, 
so what I'm saying is free fall is like the perfect free rental. Like it is, uh, and guess what? It delivered on that level. In fact, it even exceeded my expectations. Free fall is very much, it's inspired by Stephen King. You can feel that all over. It's got the horror elements. Of course, it's got a writer main character. It's got a main character losing their grasp on what's real. It's got an abusive husband. It hits an infidelity. It works on the level of like a horror short story Stephen King knockoff. Short story is a pretty good comparison because it's a short movie, 78 minutes without credits. And that's totally fine, by the way. Well, the free, it never hits like that next gear. It also never wears out its welcome. It does feel like one of those horror movies. It feels like it would rather be something else, and I'll get to another one later. Um, it throws a lot of different horror styles at you. Maybe too many. The twist at the end gets very convoluted and a little eye-rolling. It did peter out at the end for me, specifically the final scene, but the previous hour or so is pretty good. Ashmore is good as the gaslighting husband. Jane Badler gets to, from V, gets to chew the cedary as a Rose the Maid. I think she's a maid, at least. Uh, Andrea Londo is okay in the lead role. She's a little flat at times. She's fine overall. There's some pretty gnarly stuff visually in the second half, and it is at least trying to tell a deeper story of how our brains process trauma and grief and how our brains don't process it. Decent little flick delivers on that rent three, get one free level that I talked about. So like if you if you had to grab one more to get your free rental, this would be a good one. You would not be let down, but you also wouldn't be let down if you didn't watch it. <laughs> So I guess these days that would equate to like a streaming service. Maybe you already pay for like to to be probably um, not on the honor roll, but I like this movie nonetheless. The last thing Mary saw on shutter now winter 1843, a young woman is under investigation following the mysterious death of her family's matriarch. Her recollection of the events sheds new light on the ageless forces behind the tragedy directed by Eduardo Vitaletti written by Eduardo Vitaletti, starring Stephanie Scott, excuse me, Daniel Pierce, and Philip Hoffman. Here we go. A movie in that old, reliable subgenre, the 19th century Puritan lesbian horror film. One of my favorite subgenres, a classic. It's a low-budget period piece is what this is. It's going for more mood and atmosphere than it is for plot, and that's cool. Uh, This one was not for me, though. There's a five-minute scene in this movie where a group of characters are sitting around a dinner dinner table in silence, and you hear nothing but plates and silverware clanging around. It reminded me of that old Will Ferrell SNL sketch with Anna Gastar and Sarah Michelle Gellar. The three of them play a family where they're sitting around the table silently, and then one of them says something, and you could tell it gets under the skin of one of the other people. And it goes like this a couple of times until there's a release, a loud outburst of yelling between the three people at the dinner table, which usually ends in Will Ferrell screaming out some sort of non sequitur, like, I'm a division manager. I can do 100 push-ups in 20 minutes. Uh, the sketch, absolute masterclass in simmering tension. And I think that's what the scene in this movie, uh, the Mary movie, what's this called? The last thing Mary saw, I think that's what it's going for. But uh, there is no eruption here. It's all pretty much simmer, the whole movie, at least I thought. What this is, is essentially 19th century aversion therapy. There's also all sorts of nasty stuff, including forcing one of the girls to kneel on dry rice for like days at a time. It's rough, rough stuff. I do think anyone looking for a movie that is concerned with period detail and atmosphere and kind of cult horror may find more to enjoy here than I did. I did get to searching around on the internet though after watching it because I was curious about kind of a homosexuality in the 19th century, especially in New England, as it is something I'm I'm not an expert in. It turns out there aren't a ton of experts in this area from what I can tell either. I, I'm not sure. I mean, sure there are, but they're not on the internet. Or I'm also very bad at searching. Um, 
I'm not sure if the last thing Mary saw is based on any real life story, but it did come across an article on history.com about the origins of gay conversion therapy in the 19th century. Albert Van Schruck Natzing. <laughs> Definitely pronounce that one right. I don't care, though. Um, a ger- he's a German phys- physician and psychiatrist. Didn't pronounce those right either. And also studier of the paranormal. Always an interesting combination there. Uh, he was the first person who claimed that they could turn a gay person straight, or at least he's credited or discredited. I don't know, however you want to put it. In 1899, Albert would brag to colleagues at a conference on hypnosis that he had achieved this after 45 hypnosis sessions and tri- a few trips to the old brothel, he said. Sounds like Albert had a personal interest in this case himself, but he claimed that these things cured his subject and diverted his sexual impulses from men to a lasting desire of women. All right, Albert. Uh, This is pointed to as the beginning of conversion therapy, a treatment that is, of course, dismissed today, but it was also widely practiced throughout the 20th century. Some nasty stuff here. Eugene Stenach, an Austrian endocrinologist, believed that homosexuality was rooted in the man's testicles, which led to testicle transplantation experience in the 1920s, in which gay men were castrated and then given, quote unquote, heterosexual testicles. In this experiment, doctors implanted a small piece of testicle, this is a quote, from a man with normal feelings into a homosexual man during an inguinal hernia operation. They did not tell the patient about the operation and claimed that 15 days after that operation, he had a strong desire for women and eventually had intercourse and started a family. I am calling bullshit on this. Um, I will have you know, but that's the article I found. So I wanted to share that because it was interesting to me and also truly horrifying stuff. And while I didn't enjoy the last thing Mary saw very much, it did spark an interest in me learning about something new. So maybe that's enough. The last thing Mary saw is not on the honor roll, though. It feels like a horror movie that would rather not be a horror movie. And I have a whole rant built up on movies like this. But now is not the time because we're like 30 minutes into this one. Uh, But there are a ton of movies, that horror movies, that just feel like they would rather be in a different genre. But I will save that for another episode. And finally, The Requiem. A couple on romantic getaway find themselves stranded at sea when a tropical storm sweeps away their villa. Oh boy, do we see this villa a lot. In order to survive, they are forced to fight the elements while sharks circle below. Eh, I guess. Directed by Lee Van Kiet. Written by Lee Van Kiet. Starring Alicia Silverstone, James Tupper, and Deirdre O'Connell. Alicia Silverstone, of course. Batgirl from Batman and Robin. And Clueless. Well, not Batgirl and Clueless, but she's in Clueless. This is not a good movie. A <laughs> couple of things real quick on the Requiem, but they both spring from the beginning of the movie. And they are pet peeves of mine in life, not in the film so much, but a little in the films. They're on vacation, and they, the two characters are on vacation. They're this floating villa or whatever. I don't know what you call it. I don't really care. The production obviously got a nice deal on it because 90% of the movie takes place in this villa. Anyway, Alicia Silverstone's character is on her phone and her husband says something to the effect of, hey, will you get off your phone and join us on this vacation? Will you be joining us in the real world? Take a look at the world around you. This is irritating for a couple of reasons. First, I need this. I need people to stop telling people to how to live their lives and especially enjoy their vacation. Maybe being on her phone calms her. Maybe her job 
is online. Maybe she's just bored sitting around the room the entire time in the villa. Cause I know I was, this was the, about the only moment in the movie I felt connected with this character. The second reason this annoyed me, and this is an experiment that I'm going to conduct live on air here because I'm going to look up some shark related Instagrams. Cause this, uh, this is also very, and this movie is anti-social media. So what I'm going to do real quick is I am just going to plug I'm on Instagram right now. Sharks daily. Oh, this seems like a good Instagram account. Oh, look at that. A nice black and white shot of a great white. Ooh, here's a shot of jaws. It's like really kind of like bloody, very cool picture. Um, surfing. We've got some surfers with a shark. That's awesome. A tiger shark hammerhead. Hammerhead was always my favorite as a kid, a patient lemon shark here. He is, uh, he's waiting for the fish to eat it. Very cool. Ooh, a breach video. I love like shark. This is a great white catching one of those like, uh, things they throw in the water is like dummies. Oh man. He gets up. He gets some hang time here. It's awesome. So that's sharks daily discover sharks. Let's see what they've got. Oh, so some more. Oh, this one's got like, it's got like blood and stuff. That's a cool picture. Swimming to the EU. Oh, stop finning. So if you want to, we just hit midnight, the ultimate deadline to stop finning, stop the trade. So this is against like fin trades, which is a huge problem um, when it comes to sharks. So if you want to check out more of this, stop finning EU, the environmental conservation organization, you can, uh, you can check it out. It's, uh, but they brought that to my attention. You can check it out. You can donate. You can do all sorts of stuff. Sign a petition. Maybe I'll do that. So what I'm, I mean, doing this to prove a point, what I just did was much more entertaining, more informative, and also uh, it got me to learn about like a cause. And what this movie did was cost me $4. So entertaining and informative and all of that just messing around on social media. And it cost me nothing. This movie is not on the honor roll. I have low expectations for low budget shark movies, and this didn't even meet those expectations. It's a wildly incompetent movie, and I am a I'm a shark movie stop watcher. Especially when you put a shark front and center on your poster, it better show up before an hour into the movie. And this did not. It shows up an hour into the movie. Unforgivable. Get out of here with this movie. Boo. All right. That's it for January. Twelve movies I have watched including Scream, which we talked about on the main podcast. Three of the movies that I watch are on the honor roll so far. That includes the Boris Karloff documentary that I talked about here, Scream and See For Me. So that's a, about a 25% hit rate. Actually, it's not about. I think that is exactly 25% hit rate so far, which, you know, that's with you for January horror movies. Uh, that's not, not bad. Uh, better than I thought. Uh, and right now the Jack in the box awakening, the Jack in the box is the leader on the slasher search with a score of 31.5, but we'll see if that holds up. February though is looking rough, very rough. Um, I was going to bring that up. Oh, I got rid of it. Um, the Texas chainsaw massacre movie comes out and then there are a couple shutter movies. We'll see what we'll see what I do. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not looking forward to it. I got to get out of here though. You can, if you are listening to this on our Patreon. First of all, thank you. Second of all, you can, if you're not, patreon.com backslash Midwest Padna. I'm putting these out a week early and then they will hit our main feed. So if you are listening to this on the main feed, thank you as well. But check out our Patreon, patreon.com backslash Midwest Podnet. We, depending on when you're listening to this, we either have or will have a Lake Placid episode which should be a lot of fun coming out. You can check that out. We'll have a Tiny Terror episode coming up. You can check out all the great Midwest Podcast Network shows, including the Midwest Game Nerds. 
So check out all our shows. Once again, thank you for listening and I will see you next time on the honor roll.